So Paul went to Thessalonica in Acts 17 on his second missionary journey and preached the gospel and people were converted. Paul then had to leave uh, hastily because of the persecution along with uh, Silas and Timothy that were with him. They went on down to Berea and so forth. Paul later sent Timothy back to check on the Thessalonians and to encourage them, especially concerned about the persecution that there would be in Thessalonica. And when Timothy got back to Paul, who was by that time in Corinth, he wrote 1 Thessalonians and uh, was overall encouraged by the things that uh, Timothy said about them, although there were some deficiencies that he tried to address in 1 Thessalonians as well. We don't have as much context about when 2 Thessalonians was written, sent, how it was sent, and so forth. But from the themes that he uh, writes about, there does seem to be considerable correlation between 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. We'll try to, try to point some of those things out as we see them. Makes most people think that he probably wrote 2 Thessalonians maybe months after 1 Thessalonians, just because of the themes being similar in some cases. <laughs> but there's no way to really prove that one way or the other. Um, in many ways, it doesn't really matter as far as just trying to understand what he's teaching in the Second Thessalonians. So why don't we start out with uh, 1 to 4, if somebody wants to read Second Thessalonians 1, 1, 1 to 4. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give... Uh, thanks to God for you, brethren, as it is only fitting, because our faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. All right, so the senders of this letter are Paul... Silas and Timothy, we assume that Silvanus was like the uh, more formal form of Silas. We do a lot of abbreviating of names as well. Those were the three that had come to Corinth to, or come to Thessalonica to uh, preach the gospel, and so these three are sending it. Paul will shift from time to time in both First and Second Thessalonians to singular verbs. So we think from that that it's reasonable that he was basically the author. Uh, but that they are included in sending it with Paul. Um, and so he says, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So God's involved in this church. This church is in the Lord. And uh, uh, he also wishes for them grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The last phrase of both verse 1 and verse 2 are the same. Christ and God are the source of the grace and peace that this church has. Um, and and so this is a pretty typical uh, letter introduction for Paul. Sometimes he'll write some things about himself. It's interesting that in neither of the Thessalonian letters does he emphasize his apostleship like he does in nine of his 13 epistles. But probably there wasn't any question about that in Thessalonians. Not a good reason to need to emphasize that. When he gets into what he's really trying to say, he starts by saying, we ought to give thanks uh, always to God for you. Um, because he sees God as the source of their spiritual growth. And so he, he feels the obligation to thank God because of God's work within the Thessalonians, what he's doing in the lives of these brethren. 
we ought to be thankful to God for the blessings he gives us. And one of the blessings he gives us is seeing brethren we love and care about being transformed and growing in the Lord. He says, it's only fitting. This is the, this is just the appropriate thing to do. Uh, because your faith is greatly enlarged. And the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. So here are some of the things that Paul sees God doing in the Thessalonians. He is growing their faith and their love. Virtues that are so important in our spiritual life. And, and you know, people, people often look at faith and love as kind of like static entities. But really, they're, they're dynamic things. You know, people say, well, I just wish I had your faith. Or I lost my faith, you know, kind of like I lost my glasses or something. But really, faith is something that grows or diminishes. And so we need to be trusting God more and more. And that's what was happening in this church, thankfully. He sees that as a real blessing uh, from God, that they were they were growing in, in their faith in the Lord. And uh, certainly is something that we need to uh, think about. He had, he had said in 1 Thessalonians 3.10, that he was praying that he could see them and complete what is lacking in their faith. So, 1 Thessalonians recognizes that they had room for faith growth, and this uh, passage is suggesting that they were growing. It was greatly enlarged. This is uh, not just it was you know growing slowly, but it was growing rapidly. And the, their love for each other was growing ever greater. And again, we can tell from 1 Thessalonians that that was a concern of Paul's. Uh, that Paul, in uh, chapter 3 and verse 12, prayed, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and all for all people. And he had exhorted them in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, verses 9 and 10, that they would excel still more in their love for each other. So he prayed that their love would grow, he had exhorted them to grow in their love, and now he's thanking God in Second Thessalonians that they were growing in their love. So he sees this as an answer to his prayer, and he rejoices in that. We ought to be thankful and take great joy in seeing brethren grow in these kinds of qualities. And, and I don't know that you could pick out two qualities that were more fundamental in Paul's writings than faith and love. Those are the things that he really wants the brethren to develop and to grow in. And so that led Paul to proudly speaking about them among the other churches. Uh, he says, for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. It encourages other brethren when they hear of progress in the faith of, of brethren in different places. It's encouraging to tell others. If you know about brethren who are doing well in, in a particular situation, especially a hard situation, then it's really encouraging to relate that to others. It inspires you, makes you feel like if they can do it, I can do it. And so Paul's glad to be able to talk about them to these other brethren. Uh, stars shine brighter when it's darker. And when they're going through this persecution and affliction, then their faith growing and, and their perseverance means more. If everything's downhill and we're coasting, it doesn't prove a whole lot that we're still maintaining our faith. But when it's hard, then it's inspiring. And uh, so Paul is very thankful for them. 
Paul will commend brethren indirectly. This is sort of a compliment to them. I mean, it's recognizing that they are doing well, but it's recognizing it by saying, I'm thanking God for you. So instead of puffing them up and making them feel, uh, wow, aren't we special? He's giving the credit where it belongs. The, the real impressive thing is not, you know, that, that these Thessalonians were doing well. Uh, but that God was working in them to to enlarge their faith and their love. We need to give the credit where it's due, and that's certainly to the Lord. Comments and thoughts on those first four verses? All right, so 5 to 10. Joseph, you want to read them? This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for a testimony to you was believed. So, he says this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. The persecution and their response shows why God is going to punish their enemies and bring relief for them. They've maintained their faithfulness and even grown under these difficult circumstances the only righteous thing is for God to punish those who are persecuting and to bless the Thessalonians, and that's exactly what God's going to do. He is a righteous judge, and he does the just thing. So he says it's a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you indeed you are suffering. So their suffering is, is really shows their faithfulness, their worthiness. They're sticking it out under difficult circumstances. And uh, he says, after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. It would really be unjust if God let the persecutors escape the judgment that they deserve. You know, the the just thing is they get what's coming to them. Um, And if you know that what you're suffering is temporary and the, those inflicting the suffering are going to get what's coming to you, cut to them, then it's a lot easier to endure it. Uh, you, you realize, well, in the long run, all the uh, injustices will be, uh, uh, they, you know, will be punished properly. And that's what he's saying. It's only just for God to repay, repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. Paul, they are not the only ones being afflicted. Paul is too. Uh, he's, uh, you know, this is not some academic discourse by somebody who's, you know, untouchable. You know, Paul's going through this with him. He's got his own difficult situations he's dealing with. And so he speaks uh, to them as one who knows exactly in his own flesh and life what it's like to be afflicted. I think that makes this more encouraging. They're not alone. But he trusts that the Lord will not only repay with affliction those who afflict, but he'll give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well. 
God will relieve us. This will not be an, an everlasting affliction. There will be a time when God will relieve us and will afflict them, which is the just judgment. He says, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. So we're thinking about Jesus coming back from heaven. If he's coming from heaven, he's got the authority of God to do the punishing. He's got his, you know, heavenly army joining him, these mighty angels in flaming fire. So he's got all the uh, forces he would ever, you could ever imagine you would need to be able to deal with things and, and mete out the punishment that's appropriate. He says, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So, those who are wicked, disobedient, unfaithful, they're going to receive retribution. They're going to get back what's justly coming to them. I don't think he's talking about two different categories here in verse 8, but he's describing how bad these people were. They they are they don't know God and they don't obey the gospel. It's those people, those rebels, that will be uh, severely punished. They'll pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So eternal destruction, that's not something you want to get. That's, uh, we're always used to things in this life that are conceivably reversible. You know, you may go through a really hard time, but, but you know, even, even if it's terminal, sometimes terminal cases aren't terminal, you know how that goes. And so we always have some hope, maybe it'll be reversed. Eternal destruction, everlasting destruction, has no, uh, has no end. There's no way to reverse it. It's final. And so that's really, uh, uh, you know, s- sobering. And it's a a punishment, a destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, which is the thing that makes eternal punishment so bad, is that it is exclusion, it's banishment from the presence of God and from the presence of everything that's good. There's an isolation from all that would be good, lovely, nice, you know, friendly, there, when you take God and everything associated with God out of the picture entirely, you're left with darkness and violence and wickedness and malice. You know, we need to think maybe more when we think about eternal punishment of the isolation. You know, there won't be any texting, you know, in hell. There won't be any email. There'll be no sharing a cappuccino and comparing notes on how we're doing in the afterlife. It's not like that. Sometimes people have this idea, well, there'll be a comradeship of the really bad dudes. No, there's no comradeship. There's no friendship. There's no love. This is just isolation. This is people being separated and excluded from God and everything that's associated with him. So there's no hope. And, uh, you know, it's, it's what you'd expect in a place that is totally devoid of any contact with God. So that's what they'll get. That should make us think twice about giving in to persecution or letting those who afflict us turn us away from the Lord. They are going to get what's coming to them. They are going to be severely punished. God will see to it that everyone gets what they deserve. But it's it's the same day when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day 
and to be marveled in at among all who have believed. So at the same time that the wicked people are being banished from God, the saints are with the Lord. He's glorified in his saints on that day and marveled at among all those who believe. We'll share God's glory. We'll be overwhelmed by the wonder of, of the Lord. We'll be with the Lord. So as bad as it is to be banished from the Lord, to be in the full and complete presence of the Lord, to see his glory and to share in that, you can't possibly imagine how awesome and wonderful that is. You know, the two destinies are so starkly contrasted. We just need to be sure that we continue to persevere in our faith and loyalty to the Lord, serving and growing in him, and we have everything wonderful to look forward to, even though here we may receive persecution and affliction. So this is really giving them a boost, giving them encouragement in their difficult circumstances that they've got a wonderful judgment day to look forward to for them, where he will give relief to those who are afflicted and he will afflict those who, who ought to be. Comments and questions through verse 10. So verse 5 starts with, this is an indication. I think this is is a added right. phrase. Is that looking back at what he had just said had happened? Or is that just saying, here is, and giving an example then of this indication? I think he's going back to the idea of their perseverance and faith in the midst of the persecutions. And that that kind of, the fact that they're doing the right thing and the persecutors are doing the wrong thing leads you to understand there has to be a judgment day where God will do the right thing. He'll afflict the afflictors and he'll bless those who, who are persevering. So I think he's trying to tie it in with verse 4. That's still not the you know easiest connection for me either. But, but I think he is trying to say that when you see the reality here, you see that there will have to be a judgment day. Justice has to be done. The afflictors have to get what's coming to them. So it's not a, uh, it's like, uh, well, you look at this, and there's an example of the bad people being punished, and that's an indication of what's going to happen. That's not the way, we, I mean, when you read that word indication, right? it kind of yes. gives you, this is an example. Right, I think it's, it's not more exactly. like this is, this is the reason why you know there's got to be justice done. Okay. Yeah. That's what I think, but I wouldn't swear to it. So. Yeah, because if, because otherwise he doesn't really give a, an example. That's right. He doesn't really say, well, here, you see it happening here, so you know it's going to happen there. It's more, uh, God has said this is going to happen, and this is kind of the, the proof that it will be later, or that there will be a... It's almost like, when, if you, if you, if you believe God's a just God, then don't those who persecute have to get what's coming to them, and don't those who are afflicted have to be blessed? I mean, that, that's a logical conclusion based upon the nature of God. All right, 11 and 12. To this end also we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. For a short letter, there will be a lot of references to prayer in this letter and even to the specific content of prayer which is always interesting because 
so often we have some of these harmless, uh, homogenized uh, prayers that are just limited to health and employment and travel and things like that and don't really say much of anything. Whereas you see Paul's prayers as being very thoughtful. That's something that, you know, I need more of. Uh, to this end, also, we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling. Certainly we want that, that God will see us as being, as living a life worthy of, of what we've been called to. And fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. So I think that he's saying that we have good impulses. We have the desire to do good things. And he's asking that God will help us turn those good intentions into concrete actions. That he'll fulfill the desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. We need God to work powerfully in our lives to enable us to accomplish the good things we want to do. To not leave them just on the on this on the idea of the category of of well you know I want to do these good things we're asking God you know give us the power and the strength and the determination to actually fulfill the the desire for goodness that we have that's a thoughtful prayer uh, and 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 needed and we need to recognize it's God who equips us it's God who empowers us. And strengthens us to, to accomplish what we're wanting to accomplish. And the purpose of that, in verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him. So the greatest purpose is that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified in you. We want Christ's glory to to be displayed. We want him to be glorified and you in him. That we would share in Christ's glory. Here are those he's been talking about who would be, in verse 9, away from the glory of his power. But his goal, his prayer is that the name of Jesus would be glorified in you and you would be glorified in him. It is incredible, first of all, that God could be glorified in us. That we could live and act in such a way that God would receive glory. That's an amazing thing to think about. And then that we would be able to share in the glory of God. It also just blows your mind. Uh, what, a, what a blessing to think that that could happen. So when, when God does enable us to fulfill our desire for goodness, it causes him to be glorified and us to be glorified in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, you know, everything we have and everything we'll ever be able to be, we owe to God. You know, and he wants us to focus on his grace as the source of every blessing. He doesn't want us to think that we're accomplishing this on our own. So, the idea that our life, our good conduct can glorify God, and then that we can be glorified in Jesus, all of that process is attributed to God's grace and mercy working in our life. So just really thoughtful prayer, even if it's two verses, and uh, makes you really understand more the things that Paul thinks of as really important and fundamental. Comments and questions on chapter 1. So you mentioned the the prayer and the kind of the what would you call
call them the things we pray for seem kind of very shallow right sometimes but how do you uh, maybe sometimes i look at these and you think okay for example we pray that god may count you worthy how what what happens What, what does that do i mean in other words if they're not worthy is god going to count them worthy you see what I'm saying with that? What what exactly is the outcome of that prayer, or e- even in some of these others about their, uh, you know, their perseverance and things like that? What kind of action does that re- result in? We probably don't know. <laughs> okay. You know, I, I believe God does act, but it's a lot like a lot of other things that we pray for. I mean, when I pray for God to give me my daily bread. What does that mean God's going to do? Well, I suppose he's got a large range of things he may do. And maybe all several of them at the same time. You know, will he preserve my health? Will he preserve my job? Will he, you know, give me some experience that I'm going to need for the next job? Will he be, you know, there could be a lot of things he's doing. So I don't think we hardly ever know what strings God is pulling to accomplish things. So I guess maybe what I'm saying in that is, it's not like he's praying to God, God, I know they're not doing much, but go ahead and count them worthy. No. Yeah, no, no certainly not. Uh, to, the idea of, of counting them worthy is the idea of helping them to be worthy, not just counting them right. for something that they're not. Yes. Right. So right. that'd be the same in many of these things. So sometimes if we feel like, I almost feel like, uh, you know, I don't want to say that because that wording is is not... Uh, that it's almost like trying to overlook their bad and just, oh, we'll just count them. Yeah, no, it wasn't be like, like praying for a daily bread and not working for it. Right. You know, counting them worthy involves they're actually got, you know, helping them to be worthy, not just counting them as a fake, fictitious kind of right. thing. Yeah. I understand. So chapter two is the challenging chapter in Second Thessalonians. It is probably... It's probably for chapter two that uh, people have not studied Second Thessalonians as often. <laughs> it's uh, my reason for not doing that too sometimes. 